so you may be, and if not right now, it, it'll be at some point, you, you're anxious, right? You can have just this anxiety of, of what's going to happen next because the future is unknown, and because it's unknown and the future, we can't control those realities, and so anxiety just begins to build up in our lives because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to pan out and what that means for us. And so we just get hearts that are troubled. And it's no, we don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that we as a culture are, are plagued by anxiety and exhaustion, for one. And, and we don't really know how to deal with it. How do we deal with this anxiety that wells up in us? And uh, we often don't know how to deal with it because we don't quite know the root of our anxiety. And so it is just a struggle all around. And obviously... We can't go down the row of each person and talk about it. Uh, maybe just, Jay no, I'm kidding. We, we can't go down the row and just say, hey, what's your problems? What makes you anxious? Let's address it. And we're not going to do that. But thankfully for us, God's word has truth for us and relates to us uh, in a way that, that will be helpful because we can turn to his word and be informed by what he says. And so in John 14, which is where we'll be this evening, Jesus is going to be comforting his disciples that are troubled. They are troubled in heart. They're worried. They are anxious. To the degree that Jesus has to tell them, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's saying, hey, I know you're anxious, but trust me. Trust God. And so we are going to learn from Jesus and how we can be comforted by the truth of his word, by his promises. But first, we've got to ask ourselves, why are these guys troubled? What is it that was troubling them? And obviously we have to go back to John 13, right? Verse 33 will give us a little bit of an idea of why these guys were troubled. We're talking about the 12 disciples, which is actually the 11 disciples now, because Mr. Judas is gone to go betray Jesus. So we have the 11 disciples and Jesus here in the Last Supper. And in verse 33, Jesus says to his guys, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This is clearly going to freak out the guys that have been following Jesus every day for three years. Hey, you, I'm about to go somewhere and you can't come with me. What? <laughs> what do you mean I can't go with you? All I've done is go with you for the last three years. Now I can't come with you? Jesus is telling his guys that he's about to leave and they can't follow him. And the reason we know, because we have the hindsight of of this reality, of reading it. The reason we know Jesus is going to the cross and they can't follow him to the cross, Jesus had to do things that they could not do. We know that. We know that Jesus goes to the cross and they can't follow him because Jesus had to stand before the Father and offer a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, that is acceptable to him. Jesus' job is to save us. Our job is to be saved. We can't go there. We can't go to the cross. Jesus is the one that has to save us. Our job is to acknowledge our sin, 
Jesus' job was to pay for it on the cross. So what Jesus is telling them is that you can't go do what I'm about to do. But they don't understand that. And so they're just really confused. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, he's their spokesperson, right? He's this kind of leader. Usually when Peter would say something, he's kind of speaking on behalf of the group. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. So he's giving them a little bit of a hint, but he's still telling them again, you cannot follow me now. And Peter, always in the extreme, said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So we could unpack a lot here. These are some kind of big statements, but here's the essence of what Jesus is saying to his guys. I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. That's number one. One of you is going to betray me. One of you in this midst, and they don't really know what's going on with the whole Judas thing, it says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. So that unsettles him well. He also says in another passage, I'm going to the Father and you can't go. Just, oh man, Jesus is about to leave without us. He's going to the Father and he's going without us. Number four, your leader, Peter, is going to deny me. He's going to say, I never knew this man. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so intense with that. And then he said elsewhere, you're all going to scatter when the shepherd, which is Jesus, is struck down all of you are going to scatter. So Jesus, these poor guys, Jesus is just telling them all of these things, and they are completely unsettled. I mean, they're rattled to the core because Jesus is the Messiah. He's supposed to be the king, and now he's leaving, and he's about to get struck down. He's about to get betrayed by one of the ones and that's been following them forever, and Peter is going to deny him and say, I never knew you in like a few hours before some rooster crows. I mean, they're confused. They're unsettled. They're anxious. You could just imagine sitting in that room. All of us would be feeling what they're feeling. We don't know what's about to happen. We don't know what our future holds. We are totally out of control. And thus, anxiety began to fill their hearts. And even if you th think about this for a moment, Jesus is the one in a matter of, of hours that is going to die on a cross. He is about to be crucified, humiliated, and yet Jesus is going to set that aside to comfort his disciples. You would think, maybe just for a moment, that the disciples might take an interest in Jesus and not be so selfish, but that's just selfish to the core. And so Jesus, so loving, He's going to comfort them. And so what we want to do, we want to lean into the things that Jesus says to them that comforts them. Because here's his urge in, in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Or said literally from the Greek, you believe in God. So believe also in me. And hey, you trust God with your life. You trust the Father. You need to believe me. And so 
the opposite of this anxiety that they're feeling, this lack of control, because they're out of control, is to place their trust in the one who is in control, and that's God, and the Father, and in the Son. And he says, hey, trust me. Trust me that even though what I'm telling you is scary, it's going to be okay. And so there's a laundry list of reasons for them to be troubled, but here's what Jesus has, says to them. I've got four points that support this whole idea of putting our trust in God, that we would trust his promises. Number one, it comes from verse two. The Father's, ha the Father's house has many rooms. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, my Father's house has many dwelling places, i.e., there is room for you, those who place their faith in Christ. There is room for you to be with God forever. He said, hey, there's room in my Father's house. Take heart. There's room. He's not going to run out of room. You're not going to get kicked out of the club. There's no bouncer here. There's all of these things. You can be with my Father forever. And so what Jesus is doing is even though their present moment is filled with distress, he is getting to them to fix their gaze on future hope. You see what Jesus is doing there? He says, yeah, I know your present moment is stressful and uncertain, but there is a certainty and it's in the future. And you can put your hope in that and there's not going to be a lack of room in my father's house. There's room for you. You have a future and it's with God forever. So be comforted by that. It's what Jesus here is saying to his disciples, that this world we live in can be hard. It can be nasty. It can be discouraging. It can be painful for us. But we have a hope that Christ has overcome the world. And now, we as believers, we have a future hope secured with God in his house forever. So what I am comforted by personally in my life is by the fact that this world is temporary. I don't know if you guys get comforted by that, but I get so comforted by that. Because sometimes life just sucks. And it's annoying, and it's confusing, and it feels like we're just in this hole, and the hole is getting deeper, and we're not getting closer to the, to the top of it. What do you call the top of a hole? Ground? I don't know. Lindy, help me. <laughs> just laughing at me. Help me. Uh, you know, you just keep digging your hole greater, and you're like, I'm never going to get out of this. And you can get so discouraged in these moments. And if you put all of your hope in this world, then you're going to have a very stressful, anxiety-ridden life. I can just tell you that right now. If you put your hope in this world, you're going to have a stressful, anxiety-ridden life. But if your hope is in the future, which is secure, and it's not dependent on you, it's dependent on Christ, we can be comforted even when this world is hard. So Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms that we know the final outcome so we can endure whatever happens on this earth because we know the results i don't have any fun human psychology uh polls or anything like that i guess you could look it up and fact check me if i'm wrong but man i, I think humans in general can endure more pain and suffering uh, when we know the final outcome i just think that's true say so, man if i know that this is going to result in something positive i can endure a whole lot i think about um when, you, when a, a woman is giving birth, so I've seen this twice, it's a kind of crazy process, it is a very painful process. I don't know, but I can tell <laughs> that it's a very painful process, right? 
and nobody would just kind of like want to go through that for fun, but for Amy, because she knew that Asher and Miles was on the other side of that pain, she pushed through. She knew the result and she knew that it was positive. And so for us, in a, in a, a bigger scale of our entire lives, we can endure a lot of things and trust the Lord and just begin to navigate and trust him in the daily moments because we know the result is positive, that we get to be with our Father forever. And that future hope is secured. So that's point number one. Point number two, Jesus will prepare a place for us in his Father's house. Jesus will prepare a place for us in his Father's house. Um, and so this is actually in, in the second part of verse 2. He says, For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So when Jesus is saying he's, he's preparing a place for us in his Father's house, it's not implying that heaven is in disrepair. It's not saying, hey, heaven's kind of in construction mode right now. We're not quite ready. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to... I'm going to get my, my carpenter game on, you know, that's what I did down on earth, I'm even better in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying we need to work overtime to make sure there's room in my father's house. This is not a, a problem that it is in heaven that Jesus is working on. What Jesus is preparing is actually the way to the father's house. Jesus is preparing the way, the route to get into heaven. You say, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, what is deficient? What is in lack of preparation? He's not preparing a room in the house, but preparing the way for us to the Father. The house is ready, but the way to heaven is not, because sin has not yet been atoned for, right? Jesus has not gone to the cross yet, but he will in a matter of hours, and he's saying, hey, I'm going to the cross to atone for sin. I, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who's about to take away the sin of the world. He's about to be slain. He's saying, I'm about to deal with sin. I'm about to deal with the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, the curse of God. It's still unsatisfied, and Jesus is the only one that can pay it. He's the only one that can satisfy the wrath of God because he is the perfect spotless Lamb who is sinless, perfect, fulfills the law to the T. And so he's the perfect sacrifice. And he is the one that will bear our condemnation. Death is yet to be defeated, and Jesus is about to give his life and take it back from the jaws of death. He goes to prepare a way for us to remove the obstacle so that we can go to be with the Father. And I, I think this is... He's preparing the way, and it emphasizes this if you look at verse 4. Jesus says, and you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. This has been really confusing, everything you're saying. We don't know where you are going. But, or, or no, not but, but he says, we don't know where we are going. How do we know the way? He's like, if you're leaving, how are we supposed to figure this out? Do you have a map? To get where you're going, how do we get to the Father? And Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is a massive, massive statement from Jesus. Jesus is the way, not a way. 
He is the only way to the Father. He is the truth. We live in a world where truth is kind of optional. It's up to your own interpretation. You know, we all took the art class. Well, it's like, well, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then truth must be as well. And so you can have your truth and you can have my truth and people are like, speak your truth. I just cringe. It hurts me inside because I'm like, there's the truth. And then there's, what's the opposite of truth? Falsities, falsehoods, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Right? Jesus is the truth. What he says goes. It's not an optional thing. It's not like, oh, that's good for you. So no, this is the truth. He is the life. That there is no life outside of Jesus. He is the life giver. He is the agent of creation. But we have the spiritual connection with the Father because of what Jesus has done. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. So Jesus is going to prepare the way by dying on the cross for us. He will ascend, but he's going to come back again. And this is uh, just to, to kind of segue into point number three, which is Jesus will come back to the earth and bring us to dwell with him. Uh, Jesus here is actually using Jewish uh, customs or kind of wedding tradition to explain his ascension and eventual return to the earth. So uh, how wedding customs would work for them, it's a little bit similar to us, but there's going to be some differences. And so you'll see things and be like, oh, I kind of get where we get what we get from. That didn't make sense how I said that, but you know what I mean. So what? Uh, after a man and a woman, they would kind of go through a courtship process, or sometimes it was just totally arranged by their parents, but sometimes they would have this courtship process. Sorry, I'm not trying to force you into arranged marriages. Um, but that's how they would do it, okay? And after they would go through this courtship process, the man would go to his girl's house, girlfriend, whatever they would call it, and he would have the old talk with uh, this girl's dad, okay? And they would sit down, and theirs is kind of crazy. They would actually arrange, like, a price that he would pay the father in order to have her as a bride, uh, which is weird, and I like the whole ring thing that we do better. It's like, hey... I'll just buy her a nice ring, and that will show that I'm in, and I mean this. Uh, but they would have this whole agreement process, and, uh, and so once they exchanged that, that exception, they would kind of have this little covenant set in place, and then they would be betrothed to one another. So they would then be in the betrothal process that we would call fiancé or engagement process, and here's what would happen. Instead of like then hanging out all the time and, and doing all of these wonderful things together and be like, this is my fiance and all of that jazz, the, the guy would go away for like a year. And they wouldn't really see each other. They would just kind of be a distance. And you're like, well, what the heck are they doing? They're preparing. And so what the guy would do, the, uh, the fiance, the husband-to-be, he would go back to his father's house. And he has this covenant. He has this thing secured. So this woman is... Uh, is, is going to be his bride someday, but he goes back to his father's house and he starts to build an, an add-on to his father's house. Literally, this is what they, do, they would do. They would go and they would build uh, another room or another even like big section of rooms and he was preparing the place for him and his wife to live in their father's house. And I know you're thinking in our day and age, you're like, that's so cringy, and I would hate that, and how awkward it would be, and I get that, okay? I'm just telling you what they did, all right? And we'll relate it to Christ in a second. 
So he would build and he'd do all these things. Meanwhile, uh, this girl, this wife-to-be, uh, she would be assembling her bridesmaids. And they would be doing whatever, I don't know, whatever they would do, bridesmaid things. And uh, maybe a wedding dress, yoga, something like that. Just getting them ready. Uh, and they would kind of they would kind of do their thing. I hope that wasn't a bad joke. I'm just saying, maybe. And, uh, and they would just wait. And, they, they, and when the uh, guy would be ready, that the, all the things in the house were prepared, he would begin to go back to get his bride. They would send a groomsman, at least one. They would send some of the guys ahead of them to warn and, and tell the bride, your husband is coming, your groom is coming. So you'll see some parables in the scriptures where they kind of have their little lamps on and they say, hey, make sure you have your lamp on, you're ready when the bride comes back or when the groom comes back, excuse me. And so this groom, they would, they would shout and be like, hey, your groom is coming. He's about to receive you. He's about to bring you back to his father's house, and you're about to get married. And they have this whole thing, and so the bridesmaids, they get pumped up, and they're excited. And so uh, they cover her in a veil, and then he comes and receives her and brings her back, along with the whole wedding party. It's like this whole uh, festival thing, very festive. And they would get to the father's house. And they had, prayer, they had prepared all these things, so they sent out the whole save the date. And so everybody was here for their week-long uh, wedding celebrations that they would have. But they would get there, and everybody kind of receives them. And then the strangest thing happens. While all the guests are there, uh, they go into their bedroom, their newly prepared bedroom, and they would consummate their covenant, their marriage covenant. I'm not going to explain consummate. I hope you can figure that out. Uh, and so all the guests are just kind of waiting outside, you know, doing whatever. And they're just out there consummating. And then they would like open the doors and she could lift up the veil and they'd be like, let's party! And it's this crazy thing for like a week. So that is Jewish wedding custom, all right? Um, and I know you're like, this is weird and I'm glad I'm in America. And okay, I'm with you. But here's what Jesus is using as this explanation. Jesus has committed himself to the church, his bride. That's what the church is called, the body of Christ. All those that have been chosen by God to believe and have faith in him, uh, he's committed himself to us. And as he's talking to his disciples, he says, hey, I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm going to ascend to the Father. And the church, the bride, is continuing to grow in people and people and people. But one day, Christ is going to come back. He's going to return to the earth, and he's going to gather all all of his people and he's going to bring them back to the father to heaven where they will dwell to with forever in relationship to one another and this is obviously a spiritual reality of what we're talking about here but Jesus's whole point in this and is is trying to comfort his disciples and he's saying yes I am going away but my going away fulfills a purpose and you better believe that I'm coming back just as a groom comes back for his bride, I will come back for you. And so our point number three is that Jesus will come back to the earth and bring us to dwell with him. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What I love here in, in, in what Jesus does is that he shifts the perspective of the disciples away from a place. Right? He's not just saying, hey, it's the Father's house, like I'm going to take you to heaven. 
He's saying, I'm taking you to myself. So he shifts the disciples' perspective in the value of eternity away from a place and towards a person. He's saying, you get to be with me. I'm going to take you to myself. Meaning, the essence and value of eternity is that we get to be with God forever. That's what should excite us more than anything else. And it's fun to think about heaven and all the wonderful things that could be there. And you're like, is my dog Lucky going to be there? And like, maybe, maybe. And we kind of go off on all of the cool side gadgets of the amazing things that might be in heaven. But what should foster our hearts with excitement more than anything else is that we get to be with God forever because that's what we were created for. That's, that's the Garden of Eden. That Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God in the garden. That was their purpose, was to be with him. And because of sin, that relationship was, was fractured. And so more than anything else, Jesus came to restore that relationship so we can fulfill what we were created for. And that's to be with God forever. And I know that some of you, as you think about these comforting promises from Jesus to still your anxiety, I know some of you might be pushing back in your head because you're like, all of these are really far off, right? Like, that doesn't help me now. I still might fail this final. How does that help me that I'm going to be with Jesus forever? Like, what helps me now? It doesn't help my anxiety go away right now. That doesn't fix my problems today. And if that's you, I get it. I'm glad you're here. You're just like Philip. Read with me in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. <laughs> so Jesus is hitting them with all of these wonderful promises. And remember, I mean, Jesus has showed himself again and again and again to be God in the flesh. Equal with the Father in glory and in nature. And then, oh, Philip, he's just freaked out. And he says, hey, if you could just show us the Father, that would really help me. Like, that would just make me feel comfortable. Like, that would just, that would really assure me. And I bet you the same way. Like, sometimes you just get kind of in the doubt, in the darkness of life. You get stressed out. You get anxious or whatever. And you're like, God, if you could just send me a sign in the clouds and say, I see you, that would make me feel great. <laughs> or something like, just make a rabbit run across me and I'll trust that you're here forever and I don't need ever anything. Just give me a sign. Just give me a little, little something just so I can feel good. And I'll get through the rest. Right, that's us. That's kind of our hearts. And Philip is doing the exact same thing. He's saying, just show us the Father now, and we'll be okay. If I could just see him now, you give me a glimpse, then I'll be able to navigate through all of the rest of these things. Just show us the Father, and that's enough to get me through the troubles. And what Jesus is going to tell him, starting in verse 9, is our fourth point. God is with us now, tomorrow, and forever after that. God is with us now. He's going to be with us tomorrow and forever after that. In verse 9, I'll read through 11. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, that's got to sting a little bit. <laughs> he's saying, hey, you've been with me for three years, and you don't even know me. But here's what he's doing. Here's what Jesus is connecting. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Jesus essentially says the same thing over and over again in this little passage. He says, me and the Father are so profoundly one that being with God the Son is just like being in the presence of God the Father. He's saying we are one. Jesus' statements are here. I mean, they're massive for our understanding of the Trinity. If you go take a Trinity class, you're going to be reading these texts. And just a simple thing for us is the way that we kind of define it at DBC. We believe uh, that the one true God eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in nature, equal in glory, and yet distinct in relationship to one another. So the one true God eternally exists in three persons. You say, how does that work? Well, remember, he's infinite and we are finite. We have little, no offense, peanut brains, and God is infinitely genius. Okay, and so we're not going to be able to fully grasp that, but we know it's true because of what God has revealed to us. And so he says, hey, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you know me if you've seen me, if you've been with me, then you've been with the Father because we share the same nature. You've been with God for three years, Philip. What do you mean, show me the Father? We're of the same nature. We're of the same substance. You're not getting a whole different cat. You're getting the same God. Are we distinct persons? Yes. We're distinct persons, but we share the same nature. So Jesus is saying to Philip that you don't need to see the Father in order to be comforted because God the Son is standing before you. And we are one. So this should be enough for Philip. And I know some of you are like, well, what about us? It would be the coolest thing in the world if we just got to sit down with Jesus, right? Like, it would be awesome. Hey, could I just have like an hour chat with Jesus at a coffee shop? Just ask him a whole lot of questions. Maybe just get to follow him around, see how he does things, see how he navigates some difficult circumstances and being like, hey, would you just let me know who I'm marrying now so I can get this out of the way, right? We just, we would love that. We would love to be face-to-face -face with Jesus physically in his presence. And there might be a little bit in us. It's like, man, we feel slighted. We feel like we kind of got the short end of the stick. I was like, man, I'm getting gypped because I didn't get to be with, the, with Jesus physically. And you might be like, man, if I was in that room and Jesus was standing across from me, I'd be like, hey, man, I trust you. You go do whatever, I trust you. We think, man, I've got it hard. But here's what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. For those of us that have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, we have the assurance that God is with us. Like, that's just not like a fun thing to say. It's like God really is with us. 
That's a promise. That's an assurance. That is a fact. And so Jesus is comforting them with the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. He says, yes, I'm with you now physically, but soon I will be with you spiritually. That I'm going to be in you, that the Godhead is going to dwell in you, that your, your body is going to be a temple. And that's a beautiful thing for us because God's with us still. He's not left us as orphans, and it doesn't mean, he, I mean, he's, he's not disinterested in your day-to-day. He cares. He's with you. And so the very things that are troubling you now, God is well acquainted with. He does not turn a blind eye. He's not asleep. He's not indifferent. He's with you. He's in it with you. He knows. And in verse 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit's not passive. He is actively working in our lives, teaching us, reminding us of God's word so that we would be conformed to Christ-likeness. That's amazing. God is with us now, tomorrow, and forever after that. Jesus later is actually going to say, hey, it's better that I leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. It's better that I'm gone. Because Jesus would just be in one place, and he says, hey, it it would be really non-efficient for Jesus to still be here on earth. You realize that, right? He's like, hey, I'm actually going to spend some time in Asia for the next, like, 25 years. I'll get back with you when I get home. Right? That's how it would be. Like, we couldn't, wouldn't be anything else because you're just physically there, but the Holy Spirit is with all of us. And so it's better. It's far better to know that the Spirit of God is dwelling in us. And so the battle for us is to deepen our trust in what God says is true. The battle for us is to deepen our faith that it really is good for us. He has laid out these promises in John 14 for us to cling to in the midst of our doubt and our darkness and for us to be comforted when anxiety grips our hearts. So, when you are troubled in heart, remember, number one, the Father's house has many rooms. And there is a place for you. There is a place for all who trust in Jesus. Number two, Jesus has prepared a place for us in the Father's house. It means it's not up to you. It's not up to your work. It's not up to your merit. You're not earning your way into heaven. Praise God, because you wouldn't make it. Jesus has made a way by dying the death that we deserved so that we can have life again, so that we can have a reconciled peace relationship with the Father. He has prepared a place for us. Number three, Jesus will come back to earth for us and take us to himself. And number four, did I say four? Uh, I did. So that was number three. This is number four. God is with us now, tomorrow, and forever. Let me pray. Father, we believe these truths. We believe these promises. uh, But we need help. We need help in our day-to-day because um, if we're honest, we can be spiritually short-sighted. That we 
and be just like the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness when you miraculously delivered them from the most powerful nation in the world of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea so that millions of Israelites could walk through, and then crashing the Red Sea on Pharaoh's army, only for a matter of days for them to be griping against you, wishing that they were still slaves in Egypt. We are fickle-hearted, spiritually short-sighted people. And so in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our doubts, in the darkness that clouds our judgment, that clouds our perspective, God, would you help us fix our hope in the future? Would you help us fix our lives on what you have said, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you have prepared a place for us. And so even when this world sucks and we don't see what you're doing and where you are and how you're working and why this is happening to us, we can trust that we have a hope secured with you forever. And beyond that, you're with us now. You're with us today. You're with us tomorrow. And you're with us forever. Father, we love you. Would you, would you help us walk in this and live in this reality in a way that is so evident to the world around us that we have a hope secure, that we are a rock built on, or we are a house built on the rock, not on the sand. So when the storms come, when trials and tribulations come, we stand firm, not because we're amazing, but because you are good and true and powerful. Father, we love you and we worship you now. Amen. I once was lost in darkest night.